Here we go. We're headed to Daniel chapter 2 as you get the notes. Let's just do a little bit of why they're handing out the notes to wake up. Popular modes of travel. If you're going a long distance, what is the most popular mode of travel? Airplane's going to be up there. Car, train, buses. I don't know if bus is up there. I think boat is. Here we go is what they said. Walking, bikes, boats, buses. There it is. Trains, airplane. Number one was car. Uh, here's one. States with the most lakes. Ten acres or more. Minnesota. Minnesota's up there, but it's not number one. Michigan, I think, is up there. Wisconsin, I think, is up there. Uh, I'm not sure Florida's up there. You still haven't hit the one with the most. No, not Missouri. Not New York. No, no. Alaska's number one. Here's Texas, and it gives the, the numbers of them that are there, and so you can see the number of lakes, supposedly, and Alaska has three million of them. Yeah, just a phenomenal difference. Name a type of big fish. Whale is going to be there. Shark is going to be there. A tuna, I think, is going to be there. What would you say? A whale, somebody said already. Marlin, I think, is there. Here we go. Sturgeon, stingray, sailfish, d dolphins, great white shark, whale was number one. Name a famous river. Mississippi will be there. Okay. Nile should be there. Missouri. Here we go. What they said. The Swati. Nobody said it. Nobody said it. Susquehanna, St. Lawrence, Colorado, Nile, Amazon, and Mississippi. Yeah, a sport that requires you play with a net. A net. Hockey is going to be there. Basketball is going to be there. Badminton's there. Soccer's there. I think lacrosse is there. I think tennis. Badminton, lacrosse, ping pong. There you go. Hockey. You guys got these all. Basketball number one was tennis. Name a game kids play outdoors. Tag. Hide and seek is there. Tag is there. Tick, kick the can. I don't think kids know what that is anymore. Okay. And it's not up there. Okay. Uh, any others? Here's what they said. Hopscotch, kickball, baseball, soccer, hide and seek, and tag were the games they were given. Name something people do to avoid sunburns. Number one is don't go to Arizona in the middle of the summer. <laughs> Stay inside is going to be up there. Anything else? Sunscreen. What's that? A clothing that is long and light. That's going to be up there. Hat. Here's what they said. Stay indoors, especially at peak times. Stay in the shade. Wear light clothing. Wear broad rim hats. Use suntan lotion. As I said, you know, stay, oh, oh, a hot, what is considered hot? <laughs> this is very subjective. Here's what the, here's what the survey said. Anything over 60. Okay. Okay. Anything above 73. Okay. Above 100 degrees. And over 90 degrees, and in the 80s. You know what makes the big difference? Humidity. Humidity. We, got out, we get to Arizona, you walk out of the plane, and it feels like an oven, but there's no humidity. You get to Philadelphia, walk out the plane, as soon as you get off the plane, get in the tunnel, it's like, oh, 
the humidity is just amazing by differences. And so here we go. Let's go to Daniel. Let's do a hot book of the Bible. That is the book of Daniel. And if you remember the story, a lot of really fun different details about the book of Daniel. A lot of different events. And we've got the setting that about 605 Daniel and his friends are going to end up in captivity. And uh, then for the next 70 years, the nation of Israel is going to be in captivity, at least some of them, and then the whole nation uh, by 586. And they're in this captivity for, as God predicted, 70 years. Daniel is a part of that first group that goes into captivity. And when we open up the story, Daniel and his friends are working in the palace. They are being trained to be wise men. And uh, so they're being Chaldeanized. And they respond by saying, we don't want to eat the same food that the other... Uh, uh, mentors are being given and so they propose that we can eat this non-kosher food for 10 days test us and the test is after they pray that they look better than the other boys and so that's the beginning of the events in Daniel's life that we know about how Daniel is standing out showing wisdom showing that he's uh, trying to be loyal to the word of God chapter 2 opens up and as we talked about uh, the last time we were meeting King Nebuchadnezzar who is the king at the time has a dream a dream that keeps on coming back. Apparently he dreamed dreams is the idea. It's recurring. And in this dream, it's really upset him. And he calls the wise men in and says, you have to tell me both the dream and you have to tell me the interpretation. And they say, we can't do it. Nobody can do it no, except for the gods. Very insightful on their part. And so he says, you got to tell me the dream. They say, we can't. He says, that's it. I'm done with you. And he sends the executioner to wipe out all the wise men. Now that would be Daniel and his friends who are in training. They would be wiped out as well. And so when Daniel hears about it, Daniel says, can we have an opportunity to be praying about this and to help us to be able to see if we can discover any kind of answer that the king is seeking. And so he and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as we know them by their popular names, what we, they do is they get together and they pray. They immediately uh, go to prayer, ask God to give them wisdom, and they receive from the Lord, they receive an answer. The answer is the dreams. Their response, as soon as they get get the answer is to praise God. Instead of running and saying, let's, let's get to the business, they take opportunity to pause and to praise God. It reminded me of the story that we have up here posted that there's this lighthouse keeper who was sent to this remote area when it's near a village and he's given only so much amount of materials. And every month they would come and restock some of his supplies of food. And especially the most important element was the oil to keep the, the lamp lit in the lighthouse. Well, what happened after his first month or two is the people he got to be friends with, they would come, the people in the village nearby would come and say, hey, can we borrow a little bit of oil? Can we borrow a little bit of your oil? Can we borrow a little bit of your oil? He wanted to be friendly with everybody, and so he kept on loaning out some of the different oil that was to be used at the lighthouse, but then what happened is when the major storm came towards the end of the month, he had no more oil to light the lamp. And when they did the investigation after the ship crashed on the rocks, they found out that he had run out, even though he had been given the right amount that would keep them going up through that period of time, but he had given it to the people, loaned it off, and as a result, he wasn't able to do that, which was his most important responsibility. And the court result was the oil was given not to be friendly, it was to be given for safety. That was the purpose, the sole purpose of the oil. In the same way, you and I have 
one sole purpose. We are in our major role in life is supposed to be glorifying God, is to be honoring God. So when he gives us those moments to give praise, when he gives us those, those situations to be offering glory to him, we're supposed to be taking it. Not to be preoccupied trying to be friends with everything and everyone around us, but to be focused on make sure that we glorify the Lord, glorify the Lord, glorify the Lord. That is our major and sole purpose in our life. While in that same way Daniel and his friends, when they get the answer to prayer, they realize that. And so immediately they go to praise, and then after their praise time, then they say to the, to the captain of the guards, we have an answer, now take us to Nebuchadnezzar. And say, so go before Nebuchadnezzar, and Daniel now in chapter 2, we read what happens when Daniel gives the interpretation. Then it says in verse 25, Okay, it, we read in verse 25, Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said on, thus unto him, I have found a man of the captives of Judah that will make known unto the king the interpretation. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known unto me the dream which I have seen and the interpretation thereof? Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king hath demanded cannot the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers show unto the king. But there is a God in heaven that reveals secrets and makes known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed are these. As for thee, O king, your thoughts came into your mind upon your bed, what should come to pass hereafter. And he that reveals secrets makes known to you what shall come to pass. But as for me, this secret is not revealed to me for any wisdom that I have more than any living, but for their sakes that shall make known the interpretation to the king, and that you might know the thoughts of your heart. Thou, O king, saw and behold a great image. Then he tells. Now, here's the point. Okay, Daniel's going to make it clear that he is not the one who is giving the interpretation. He's only a vehicle. He's an instrument. He's a vessel. And it is very important that Daniel stresses this, not only here at this point in the introduction, but at the very end, he rehearses and again, he talks about, at the end of verse 45, the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. The dream is certain, the interpretation thereof are, are sure. And so what you have is Daniel making it clear this is of God. Now think this through. That Daniel saying to this man, this is not me. That strikes me as very, very unusual. Why? Why is it unusual that Daniel did not take any credit? Because most people would. Why? Why would most people take credit? They gain favor with the king. By the way, is there rewards for those who would tell him? Earlier the king said, if you tell me, I'm going to reward you. So Daniel doesn't go after personal profit. Now think this through, okay? This is in the midst of a pagan anti-God court. These people are not Jehovah worshipers. In fact, their idea of Jehovah is that he's a wimp because they've defeated him. So for Daniel to speak up, and think about it as well, okay? Daniel has already... You know, made it personally clear. Daniel has already been introduced to the king as the one to reveal the dreams. Look at what the man said. When the man brought him before the king, the man has said, I have found somebody who has made known. And so the introduction laid it out for Daniel to say, yeah, that's me. Give me the applause. Daniel doesn't do it. In front of a king who thinks he's divine, 
a king who thinks he's all-powerful. At a time when these people, you know, this king, he doesn't know how he's going to respond. This king has already been a little erratic. He's decided to kill all of his wise men that he's invested years in training with and has relied upon in the past. And so this king is erratic. He, this could be Daniel's moment to really exalt himself, to take advantage of the opportunity that's provided for him, but Daniel doesn't. Daniel makes sure that God gets the glory, that God is spoken about, that this king is aware, even though this king thinks he's divine and his gods are better, that it's Jehovah God, the one that reveals the dream to him. And then Daniel reveals the dream. As we read on, thou, O king, saw and behold a great image. This great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before you. The form thereof was terrible. This image's head was of gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron, part of clay. You saw till a stone was cut out, that was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay, and brake everything to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, the gold, broken to pieces together, and became like a chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them all away, that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream. We will now tell you the interpretation thereof before the king. Thou, O king, art a king of kings. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom. Isn't that interesting? He makes it clear, Nebuchadnezzar, you didn't get this kingdom by your own strength. Do you remember what Nebuchadnezzar's thought is? Nebuchadnezzar will later on say, Babylon which I have made. Daniel speaks very clearly. You didn't make it. It's God. The God of heaven hath given you a kingdom, power and strength and glory. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beast of the field and the fowls of the heaven has he given unto your hand and thee and hath made thee ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. And the kingdom which shall rise another kingdom inferior to thee and another third kingdom of brass which shall rule over all the earth. And then a fourth kingdom. Let's deal with what he said so far. Okay? He tells the king the interpretation which we have. It's from God. He makes that very clear. He tells them that this is the future of mankind. This is man's history from Daniel's time forward. He tells them that it's absolutely true. He tells them the interpretation is absolutely certain. He tells him as well that it involves a statue of a human and that this statue is bright. It's huge. It's brilliant. But it's also frightening. It's terrible. It's something that is scary if you would have it that way. He tells them that as you go down through this statue, you're going down through history, and each section of the statue represents a different major world empire. Now you have to remember that some will say, yeah, but wasn't China an empire? That's true. Wasn't, uh, wasn't Egypt before this an empire? That is true. But from the Jewish perspective and how it affects the Jews, that's where this human history is being taken. It's being written from the aspect of what about the land of the Jews? What about their history? How will this impact the Jewish people? So it's not dealing with China because China and Jews don't have any kind of interaction through all these generations. And so from a Jewish perspective, looking at their being the center of the universe of history, that it's saying, okay, what are the major empires that affect the Jewish nation and thus the Mediterranean world? And he goes on and he identifies that there are four, maybe then maybe five major 
empires that'll come. I shouldn't say maybe, but he identifies them. And so he says, the first empire, it's you, Nebuchadnezzar, the head of gold. Now, it's interesting to kind of look at some other thoughts that come up about how this fits. Okay, Nebuchadnezzar is the empire. It goes from 605 to 539. It's head being the strongest, being the absolute. And if you look at the kingdoms as they go down historically, Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was outstanding and the way it was formed it was it was he was a brilliant ruler he was the total autocrat totally in charge of his kingdom and so as a superior kingdom in many ways the gold factor comes up is that the Marduk the god of the Babylonians was also called the god of gold which interrelates and ties them together. As well, we go into history, and Herodias writes about how Babylon, even 90 years later, that it was found to be a city that was filled with an amazing amount of gold. Elsewhere in Scripture, we find the reference that Babylon is called the golden city. So there's a lot of gold related to Babylon, so it's no surprise that the head of gold, this would fit history, this would fit as far as the uh, Bible accounts. Then he goes on to talks about the rest of it. He says, as we mentioned in verse 39, that there is going to be an inferior kingdom. He doesn't give us a lot of details here. He's going to give us more later on. But what we have here is we have another kingdom after Babylon that's going to succeed Babylon. We're clear about that. We have an idea that it's two kingdoms, two arms, and yet they're united. And so when we look at history and find out what happened in biblical history, what followed after Babylon in the course of history was the Medo-Persian, two different empire kingdoms that combined in an alliance and they became a major dominant world empire that lasted from the 550 until 539. They were a major player in what happens to Israel and the Jews. In fact, they, this is the kingdom that gets the Jews back into the land. And so God used them in a mighty way when he gets the decree for the Jews to start going back and rebuilding. This is the kingdom that Nehemiah is serving in, the Medo-Persian kingdom. And so it ruled in the Middle East for that period of time down until 332 or about 200 years. So what we know as well from history is that when we talk about this silver being a lesser metal and that's indicative of what these kingdoms are like, that they use different than the Babylonians the Medo-Persians use silver as their basis of their economy. They as a nation, we know that their leadership was not as strong, that they had a different type, they had a split leadership, that they had emperors and, uh, and they had their councils. And so from being Nebuchadnezzar, the sole autocrat, now the division within the leadership of the government, it starts dividing just like the land being very large, very prominent, but it's being less in control, if you would. And then we come to a next kingdom that he talks about. He makes comment here in this text. He says that another third kingdom of brass which shall rule over all the earth. History tells us, okay, there was another kingdom that came. This kingdom is, is associated with metal that is lesser in value, not the monetary value of the gold or the silver, but it was a metal that was stronger and it was used as the idea that, that it's going to be able to develop and strengthen that kingdom in a military military way. The kingdom, if we're looking at this abdomen part, the kingdom is one but then it divides. 
And so if we look at it and say, okay, historically what happens? The next empire that happens in the Middle East area is the Greek Empire. And interesting as you go through the history of the Greek Empire, they're the ones that introduced brass as their weaponry. We also know that in their empire, they defeated the Persians. We give the year 331. But after Alexander's death, the kingdom divides into four parts. But from the Jews and from their perspective, there's only two, the legs, the upper thighs, that really affect them. And the two different dominant and, pre and remaining lasting empires are going to be, that are going to be the Greek empires are going to be the Ptolemies and the Sadducees. Those two that in Egypt and in Assyria that will greatly affect Israel from that time that they come into play in the 300s up until around 150 B.C. And so they have tremendous impact. They have a much larger empire than the previous two that they spread throughout the world under Alexander, but they're a weak empire. Then he talks about the next empire. He says in verse 40, the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron. For as much as iron breaks in pieces and subdues all things, and as iron that breaks all these, shall it break in pieces and bruise. And whereas you saw the feet and the toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. Divided. But there shall be in it the strength of the iron, for as much as you saw the iron mixed with the miry clay. As the toes of the feet were part of iron, part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly broken, uh, strong and partly broken. And whereas you saw iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, and they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay." And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom. So he's giving us the, the bulk of human history by this iron and clay mixture. Talking about the two legs down into the feet, down into the toes. So this kingdom is going to last a long time. This kingdom is a very strong aspect, the metal being the strongest of the metals. But after a period of time, it's going to divide, and then it's going to divide even more where it goes into the two, and then it goes into the ten toes. But they're all separate kingdoms, and yet they have a commonality, he says. And they're made up of men, but they're not really united because clay and iron don't mix real well. And so he's giving us this prophetic picture, and he's giving us this idea that it's going to last, this kingdom, until the heavenly kingdom comes. In the days of that kingdom, then shall, he says, as he says, God set up a kingdom. So this last human kingdom is going to last up until the kingdom of God comes to the earth. How does this work? How does this prophecy fit together? We know that the next major world empire after the Greeks was the Romans. They conquered the Greek empire, what was left of it, around 150. And then they were a dominant empire for a number of years. That they lasted. And they had this strong empire and it was eventually divided into two. Two major empires, the East and the West, that lasted up until vestiges of it, up until the Middle Ages. And so you look at it and say, wait a minute, they ruled over many nations. They were powerful and they were tyrannical compared to all the others. They were dominant, but they were the cruel, cruel empire of the ancient world. And so they didn't unite peoples in heart. They forced them into domination into, uh, by their cruelty. So when we start looking at it, we say, how does this work? And there's explanations given theologically how this prophecy must have been fulfilled because you and I know that the Roman Empire lasted, but then it kind of crumbled and broke apart, some will say. 
And so how did this empire, is it, you know, how does this fit with prophecy? It's saying that it would last until the kingdom of God came. And so there are some that are saying that what happened is that in this visit, this image that was given of consecutive empires, the kingdom of God must have come already back historically before around that fall of Rome. That there has to be that way because there's consecutive kingdoms. And so the suggestion is that the kingdom of God came in a spiritual sense. That the kingdom of God happened after the, around the collapse of Rome. So that when Jesus came, Jesus introduced facets of the kingdom. And what happened is his kingdom came to this earth in a spiritual sense. And so the spiritual kingdom of God was the shift in this statue. And so when the fall of Rome came, there was already the kingdom of God on earth. It's called the church. And that this is the present modern day kingdom. Therefore, the kingdom of God is already here on earth. Do you believe that? No, I don't either. I don't either. Jesus started the church, but the church is not the kingdom. Okay, number one. Number two, when the kingdom comes, what's going to happen to Satan? He's going to be bound and he's going to be put in, into the bottomless pit. Has Satan been in the bottomless pit? Has there been no Satan for the last 2,000 years? Right? When the kingdom comes, it's going to be perfect. Has, have we lived in a perfect, peaceful kingdom for the last 2,000 years? No. No. So how do you explain this? How do you, and by the way, this is what you need to explain. Because this is the majority of books and things on the internet is this point of view. That the kingdom of God is only a spiritual kingdom. We are living in it now. Okay? Um, and so you and I have to answer this. How is it that this image is giving physical earthly kingdoms that were consecutive? Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome came. But all of a sudden there's this huge gap of time, and even if we include our time, are we still in the Roman kingdom? I think we are. And the reasons that I think that are these, okay? Historical facts, okay? This prophecy, as it gave, talked about this kingdom being in two parts eventually. And if we look at history, the Roman Empire did divide into the east and west. And when the political leaders fell, what replaced those political leaders, and yet still left a, a visage of Roman rule or Constantinople rule. The church, yeah, the religious aspect, which still lasted for a number of years. As well, there are influences of the Roman Empire still in our political system. Take America. What aspects of politics do we have that are very Romish? We have a Senate. We have the Republic. Okay, we have a republic form of government. We have the Senate. We have that judiciary system is very Romish by comparison to others. So we have languages, our language and a lot of the European languages. Their base is based out of that Latin language that grew over a period of time with culture. 
We have that Western culture that is very unique. Philosophy. We have that, that logic philosophy that came, economic system. We still have vestiges of the Roman Empire. And remember he's talking about in the latter days that there's not a uniting of the people, but there's a mixture of the clay and the metal. And so he's talking about as time goes by, what happens here is there's going to develop that ten-nation confederacy, confederacy talked about in other scriptures. We're going to visit it again in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel 11. He's going to make the same comments about there's going to be this ten-nation confederacy that's going to show up. And it shows up again in Revelation 13 with even more detail. That in right before the kingdom of Jesus Christ comes to the earth, there's going to be a loose knit, and yet it's politically tied well enough, a ten-nation confederacy that is going to be made of independent toes or independent nations that are going to be making, and again, not an empire, but they're going to make a confederacy. And so that same region of the world is that Roman Empire. And with that in mind, that union is going to last, that confederacy, up until the time that Jesus Christ comes and brings his kingdom. So he's giving us a picture, and by the way, out of that ten-nation confederacy comes one individual that Revelation really focuses on. Antichrist. Okay, and so we have, we have vestiges. We're living in that time period where we're Romish, if you would, until the coming of Jesus Christ. And then Jesus Christ is going to bring his physical earthly kingdom to earth. And I believe his earthly kingdom is as physical and as real as Babylon's and Medo-Persia's and Greece and the Roman Empire. Jesus will physically rule upon this earth. It's going to be a, a land Law, a land and a law and a leader is going to be here on planet earth where Jesus Christ is in rule. And it will be the final kingdom. Now he describes what happens where he says in verse 44, in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. For as much as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hand and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, the gold. The great God hath made known to the king which hath, what shall come to pass hereafter and the dream is certain and the interpretation thereof sure. Let's develop this thought. Okay? The stone he talks about. The stone not made with hands. Okay? In other words, it's not out of human contrivance. It's something that God has to develop. So this theology, this promotion that we have to bring the kingdom of God to this earth, that's fooey. That's not biblical. This is a kingdom that God will initiate. We don't initiate. It comes from the mountain made without hands. It breaks up the statue and especially the ten-nation confederacy. All that is left is of, that, of those previous countries or empires, it's going to be blown away. There's no place found for them, as we'll see. Then it grows into this huge mountain that is going to cover the entire earth. Now here's a thought for you. Keep in mind King Nebuchadnezzar listening to this. In Babylonian theology, from their day, they believed this. They believed their gods lived in mountains. Almost like the Greeks with Mount... Uh, Mount um, Olympus, thank you. Okay, and so the Babylonians thought this. So the images that God is giving the king are images that he and his theology would relate to. 
but God is giving them correct, correct explanation. If you remember that in their, in their building, they would build most of their, their temples and everything would be like the ziggurats. They would be in that mountain shape. And so this would fit this king getting this image that this would be from the divine realms. That what you're getting is out of this mountain, out of this some place where deity resides. And so Daniel makes it clear it's the God of heaven, not a God, but the God of heaven very clearly is giving you a message and he, as you know by your theology, he comes from that mountain realm. He's in that area that he's in charge. And so he's giving him this message representing the kingdom of heaven that's going to come. It's not by human effort. All of the previous empires, you don't build upon them. Now we have built upon Rome. We have looked historically and said what happened. When our founding fathers were trying to put together the Constitution and the Articles of, of uh, Confederation, they went back into history. They did a lot of research into what Plato wrote and Aristotle wrote. And so our founding fathers were well versed in a lot of, uh, a lot of what was written historically about democracy, about republican form of government. Read some of their biographies. Those men who were putting together all that different information, they were well versed in, in historic uh, political philosophy. And so they built a lot of what America is built on through history of what was stated. When, when the kingdom of Christ comes, he doesn't, need any, he doesn't need any philosophy. He doesn't need any rhetoric. He doesn't want some of what's happened in the past. It will be totally dissolved and he will build a kingdom, a perfect kingdom of his own design. And so it's going to end up filling the entire earth. And when he has this kingdom established, it's going to be a physical, real kingdom that is going to cover the entire face of our world. It's going to cover all the nations. It's going to stand forever. In other words, be eternal. It's going to be invincible. It talks about never be destroyed. And so Christ's kingdom, when it comes, and, and we think this, we think America will stand forever. It won't. It won't. And by the way, America's only lasted how many years now? 230. It is a babe in history compared to some of these other kingdoms. But it's not going to last forever. And even though I love America and I appreciate being born in this time period and in this nation, and we are truly blessed by the providence of God to live in this land, we understand that. We know that. This nation is not God's kingdom on earth. This kingdom on earth that God brings is going to come and the stone is critical. It's interesting he talks about the stone or the rock. And how many New Testament references pick up on this? That they are referring to that same idea of a stone or a rock coming and being so impacting and so influential and being that which everything is built upon. Excuse me. Whoops. Um, and so we have that same idea of Jesus Christ who is this rock, who is this stone. He talks about it in the book of Acts as well and some of the early messages that they're speaking to the Jews and giving that information. It's interesting that the Jews would hear about the stone once again, though they know the book of Daniel. You would think that they would get this in, in put it together. That Jesus is the name by which there is salvation and only Him. And so we get this information, we're told that Jesus Christ is the one to establish the kingdom. All this information Okay, comes together. And so we get this details. Now, what do we do with it? What do we do with this information that you and I know, we've studied before, we have information. So what does it do for us? How does it impact us? We just know a lot of knowledge and that's it. No. 
We should walk out of here with something. We should be thinking something. Okay, we get an idea about political systems. We get an idea from this text about a lot of information. Let's take it from the Jewish point of view. Okay, that's who it was written to originally. Let's from a Jewish point of view put this together. Gentile nations, this is from Daniel's perspective, living in that time. Gentile nations will dominate the political scene from now on. In other words, if you're a Jew living in that day, you know this, from now until the kingdom that the Messiah sets up, you're never going to be an international, um, um, I don't want to say role player, I want to make it bigger. You're not going to be the, what's that? Power, okay. You're not going to be the international power that you once were under David and Solomon. From their perspective, they are learning. They didn't accept it, but they are learning God saying, you're always going to be, you know, fledgling from here on out. Your only hope of being revived as a nation and as a power on earth is what? Yeah, it's the stone. It's Messiah. It's Messiah. That is clear in this text to the Jewish people. Now, did they accept that? Okay, they, they, they're going to fight against it. And especially when the stone does arrive, they fight against him. But it's really interesting if you keep this and look at it from the big picture, the Jews are never going to be a dominant power through all of history until they are, they are established by Messiah and his kingdom on earth. Number two, the, oh, I just said that. Okay, the Gentile empires will be more diverse as time goes by. Okay, they're going to become more diverse. There was a head solid of gold, but then everything else after that has a division to it to some degree. So it's getting weaker as time goes by. There, the other thought. Okay, these major empires are going to deteriorate as time goes by. They're of lesser values. Okay, their their strength is less as time goes by. Inferior kingdoms will overcome superior kingdoms because God allows it. So that old idea, might makes right, it's not true, okay? God allows when he allows. And it's very clear in history that even some of those, it, it, yeah, when, when we think about Greece and Medo-Persia, the Greeks should have never beaten Medo-Persia. Read the history of how those wars took place, how Medo-Persia was tried to invade fledgling Greece at the time when it was still divided before Alexander the Great. There is no way 10,000 should have stood against 100,000 Medo-Persians, but they did. Why did they win that battle? It's God. It's God. Can God providentially move even in warfare to give a fledgling power victory? Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's amazing history. And I understand that many people don't like history, but if you look at it from God's point of view, it is just, it's his story. We go down, the major empires are all going to be destroyed. None of them is going to last. They're only going to be temporary. No nation will last forever, and that includes us. Okay, okay. Now, all of that is, is human history. From the, our point of view, human, humanly speaking. So... What does this teach us about God? Every text of the Bible points us to God. Everything points us to God. We often want it to point to us. We want to interpret passages with the idea of, you know, what about me? What about me? What about me? What kind of psychological information does it give? And, and the Bible does give us that. What kind of counseling can I get out? And the Bible does do that. 
But all the passages are to be focused mostly, it's theocentric, not anthrocentric or man-centered. And so when we look at text, let's look first of all, what does this tell us about God and about Him? Because it's a revealed word revealing Him to us. And so when we look at this text, what does this tell us about God? Well, there's some obvious. He's the ultimate in control of man's history. We aren't in control. Go down to Washington, D.C. and tell them they're not in control. Okay? Say that in a, you know, ask one of, at these, at these um, debates. You know, go be present, and if you get an opportunity, ask them, do you believe that God is ultimately in control of what happens in the United States as far as economically and everything? You know, some of those candidates will have you thrown out because you said, God, <laughs> okay. And so you have this ultimate, ultimate truth. God takes an active role. I think we, in modern day, we criticize the world for denying the supernatural. We, we criticize the world but from our Christian point of view. You guys don't accept the supernatural. But I think we do too. We come to that point too. That sometimes we don't accept the idea that God is active in our world. Politically. Okay, that God is active. I mean, seriously. Okay. The elections of our last election show us that strange things happen. When Trump beat Clinton, that was not expected or did, did you think it was going to happen? Yeah. Nobody, th nobody thought it. I mean, you know, yeah, we, some, some said I was hoping that would be the case. But, you know, God has a design for these people who are in there. And so God is active in who's in charge. And by the way, just, just put in perspective, it all leads to where? It all leads us to the tribulation. So don't think Donald Trump is the Messiah. Okay, he's not. Okay, he's not the Messiah. Okay, this is all leading us to that final culmination where Jesus Christ becomes in control. And so eventually he's going to set up the real physical spiritual kingdom. And I say all this to remind us, our faith, our hope is not in Washington, D.C. It's got to be in the Lord. Okay? That he's, should we be savvy? Should we vote? I agree with that. I believe that with my whole heart. But my trust has to be in the Lord. Okay? In the, the bottom line. Number four. Mankind will not introduce or initiate this kingdom. This is the theological difference between the position we hold to and a lot of other churches and a lot of other denominations. A lot of other churches, denominations believe that if we make this world a better place, then the kingdom of God will be present and it will be here. And uh, in fact, uh, John Lennon's song, um, Imagine, imagine, that, it, that was all focused on that whole idea. I know I just dated some of us, okay. But his whole song about how imagine the world being a better place and all that, that comes from that theology that says we must make, make the world. In fact, are there missionaries, quote unquote, on the field with this theology? Yes, yes. The majority of quote unquote missions that goes out of America is humanitarian efforts. Okay? And it doesn't mean we shouldn't be concerned about people's bodies. If we see somebody in need and say, you know, God bless you, be warm and filled, we're wrong. But if all we're doing is humanitarian efforts, 
we're just as wrong. And so the idea is the kingdom of God, we can't introduce it. We won't introduce it by our efforts. What we need to do is dealing with the spiritual people. This kingdom will be greater than any other kingdom that has ever been upon the earth. It'll be bigger, it'll be better. Can you imagine living in a perfect kingdom? Can you imagine living in a place where there is no concern about the corruption in politics? Can you imagine? Okay, I'm, now I said John Lennon, and I'm doing that. Okay. Imagine, imagine not hearing gossip out of Washington. Won't that be a, you know, newspaper people won't know what to report. Okay, they, you know, they can't have a negative thing because nothing negative will come out of the Capitol. Can you imagine being present in a perfect, in, you won't need air conditioners. Humidity will not be a problem. Heat will not be a problem. Sleet will not be a problem. Okay, there won't be snow. Okay, now some of you are going to be tickled by that. Some of us, okay. There's no, there's no, no more tornadoes. There's no more, there's no more, yeah, in, in the week that we were in Arizona, they killed three or four rattlesnakes. Two of them were right outside the girl's door, like where the girls, they'll tell you more about it later, but where they stepped down out of their house that they'd stepped down, they were right there, two of them, at different times, and really close. Those snakes in the, if they're snakes, okay, in the kingdom, they are not dangerous. In fact, it says that the children will play with the snakes, okay? Can you imagine, again, John Lennon's reference, okay? But it's just phenomenal, phenomenal. The kingdom is limited. This is the aspect that we have to remind people. This kingdom is limited. Who is going to be able to be in that kingdom is limited. How do you know that? It's going to be universal, but how do you know that this kingdom has a limitation? Except a man be born again, he shall not see the kingdom of God. Except a man be born again, he shall not enter. Okay, twice in that text, he makes it very clear that you cannot enter, you cannot see the kingdom unless you're born again. Okay, now the major nation in that kingdom is who? Major nation. Israel. Israel, major nation. But we're still going to be participants in that kingdom as the bride of Christ, yes? And we're going to be there. We're going to participate in that kingdom. And so what do we do with this information out of this text? We say, oh, good story. No, no, no. It's, it's got to do something for us. It's got to help us, okay? Do you remember Nebuchadnezzar's response when he hears this? Now, this is a pagan king. This is a king who believes he is God. This is a king who believes he is in authority. Watch his response when he hears this kingdom. Then the king of Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and worshipped Daniel. Well, we all know that that wasn't the best thing. And commanded that they should offer an oblation and sweet odors unto him. The king answered unto Daniel and said, Of a truth, it is your God that is a God of gods and Lord of lords and a revealer of secrets, seeing that you could reveal the secret. Then the king made Daniel a great man, gave him many great gifts, made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon, chief of the governors. Okay, we understand that Nebuchadnezzar should not fall and worship Daniel, but give me, a, give me a word that describes Nebuchadnezzar at this moment. Humbled. Anything else? That summarized a lot of it. Anything else? Could we put fearful, respectful, um, understanding his own limitations? Okay, believing. Okay, yeah, believing would be really good because that would fit there. All of a sudden, this king is impacted by this. 
This king who is in charge, who is going to say later on, I mean this is a moment, later on he's going to say, look at all the things that I have done. He is all of a sudden humbled at this point that he says, wait a minute, it's not about me, it's about God. It's not about me, it's about the God that you represent, therefore I'm falling down before you, and we understand that that wasn't perfect, but, under, but from his perspective, this is, this is miles moving in his journey. And so he's falling down for Daniel, and he's making comment that it's not Marduk. And remember, Marduk, his God, beat Jehovah in warfare three times. For him to do this, this is amazing. This is phenomenal. This is, this is just incredible. It is more than many believers do on a regular basis. Fall down and say, it's you. It's you. It's you. It's not about me today. It's not about what do I get. It's about me giving you honor, you glory, you worship. And so that should impact us. It should impact us this way. That we trust in the Lord more and more, not the government system, not the monetary systems. Uh, we are so trained, we are so, so developed you know, in our system economically to trust in the government to provide for us. Correct? I mean, folk, any of you looking at retirement, what's the first thing that comes into your mind? You have to go where? Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid and all those different things. It's nice that they're there, but they're not where we trust in. It's a benefit, yes, and we should take care of it, yes, and we should utilize it, yes, but our trust is not in our bank accounts. Our trust is not in our pensions. Our trust is not in economics. Our trust has to be in the Lord, in the Lord. Okay. There's a story that comes out that, that you know this, you've read about this couple. They, they asked Mrs. Einstein one day, they did an interview and they said, do you understand your husband's theory of relativity? And she was not a, a physicist, she was not trained in, in the mathematics like he was, and they asked her if she really believes this and really trusts him. And her response, no, but I know him and I trust him and what he knows. Interesting response that she believed it because he said it. Same way we are supposed to trust, not because we understand everything, but that he said it. The one that we trust in. And let's make sure of this. Invest our time, money, energies in the kingdom that is going to last forever. The kingdom that is going to be that where we can lay up rewards for that kingdom, where we are investing in, in our riches and our time and our energies in that kingdom, not in this kingdom. So we take it and make sure as we wrap up, we've got to make sure, got to make sure you're going to be in that, in that kingdom one day that you are born again that you have accepted Christ. Let's take a break. Let's get ready for our worship that we'll be focusing on in the next few minutes. Thank you so much for being here, for listening. It was an honor to have you sitting in the class today. Thank you.